Welcome along everyone to another episode in the Shared Ireland podcast series. Today we are delighted to welcome along Mr Andy Pollock. Andy is a journalist, he's an author, reporter, editor and sits on numerous boards. Welcome along Andy, how are you? Thanks very much. Andy, I suppose I was researching you as I do with most of um, Shared Ireland's guests and I was staggered by your CV. Where do you get the time to fit everything in? And I suppose maybe when you you do maybe answer is if you could give our listeners maybe a little bit about your background, how you grew up, and I suppose what maybe shaped your thinking on how you got into journalism and whatnot. Well, to answer your first question, um, I do this because, like you, I love my country. And I want to see the people of the country living in peace and harmony. So if I devote a bit of time or most of my time now that I'm formally retired from paid employment to trying to find ways to do this, that's because I'm an Irishman who loves Ireland. Nothing original about that. But I'm a bit of an oddball in other ways because um, my father was a Czech Jewish socialist refugee. Who came to Ireland? Came to Northern Ireland a in Czech 19... Jewish socialist refugee. He came to Ireland in 1948. He'd met my mother, who was a from a County Antrim Presbyterian family in Prague. The previous year, she was she was um, she was teaching English. My father had been a communist. He fought in the Spanish Civil War. Was badly wounded in the Spanish Civil War. He was locked up by the British in India for being a communist. He went back to Czechoslovakia, worked as a journalist. And then when the communists actually took over, because he was a journalist who believed in free speech, he started writing things that they didn't like. And um, he got a visit from the... He lost his job. He got a visit from the secret police. And he said to my mother, who was by now pregnant with me, you better go back to Ireland. This is getting a bit hairy. Mm -hmm. So she flew back to Ballymena with me inside her, and um, and he walked out across the border into Austria about a month later at night, and eventually made his way to County Antrim, and um, didn't spend very long there. I mean, there wasn't much work for a, a Czech journalist, a left-wing Czech journalist in County Antrim. And um, um, what year would this? Uh, that was forty-eight, nineteen forty-eight. Okay. So that was the year I was born. Yeah. Okay. And so after a couple of years, we went to London. And he became a journalist in London. And we spent, I, I grew up uh, in London with this half Irish, half Czech family. Yeah. So um, I come quite, for someone who's Northern Irish, I come from quite a mixed up cosmopolitan background. So I was always going to be something of an insider outsider. Mm -hmm. And uh, my first interest was in Latin America. When I was a. a uh, after I was a student, I hitchhiked around Latin America, and that was the late 60s, Che Guevara, President Allende in Chile, it was for a left-winger, you know, it was a place you and wanted to go. And how long did you spend hitchhiking? Well, only about, not very long, about nine months. Go on, so, tell, 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 us, uh, tell us one of your most memorable stories from that. Well, <laughs> I, 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 won't tell, I won't talk about that. I'll tell some stories from later on okay. about Latin America, because I went back to Latin America. Yeah, okay. Um, so in the end, actually, what happened was I was hitchhiking in Colombia in January 1972, and the driver said, uh, do you know there's been 
in, in your country, the British Army has killed a lot of people. And I, I said, no. And that was a few days after Bloody Sunday. Yes. So something in me said, no, you shouldn't be in Latin America anymore. You should be back in Ireland. Now, I should add that when I left university in 1969, that summer, the first thing I did was I went, I came back to, to the north and worked in the civil rights movement in Belfast and Derry. And I was part of that group of kind of ragtag bag of young men and women who joined the people in Derry to help um, to basically to, to, to man the barricades to make sure nothing bad happened in the summer of 69. And were you in contact with, you know, Bernard Devlin and Jerry Fitton? Well, I wasn't. I was in contact with Paddy Doherty. Paddy, Paddy Doherty. Doherty. Paddy yeah. Bogside was yes. the kind of our leader. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was only in Derry and I was there. I was there for about four or five weeks, you okay. know, Derry and Belfast. Um, so I had that in my background. So um, I came back to Dublin in 1972 and worked for a small left or center sparky publication called Hibernia, Mm -hmm. which has long gone. That was my first job in journalism. I then, after a couple of years, moved to be a sub-editor in the Irish Times. Mm -hmm. And then, partly to do with a girl I was going out with, I went back to London. There's always and, a girl involved. There's always a girl, <laughs> and uh, an Irish girl, a Northern Irish girl, and I ended up, <laughs> I ended up uh, working for a group of um, specialist publications on Latin America. Very good. I suppose that leads me nicely on to maybe another uh, point. What was it like to be a reporter in Belfast in the late seventies, early eighties, and? Well, first of all, I should say how I got back to Belfast, because it was a roundabout route, Mm -hmm. because I was in Mexico, I was covering Central America as a freelance journalist in the mid-late 70s, and I came back from that to Belfast. Yeah, okay. Uh, I came back to, I arrived back in Belfast in 1978, Mm -hmm. and I worked first for the BBC as a freelance, and then for the Irish Times as a freelance. Yeah. And I suppose... Most of my journalistic work in the late 70s, well, particularly in the early 80s, was with the Irish Times. Okay. And I worked with some of the great journalists there, David McKittrick, Mm -hmm. Ed Maloney, Uh northern editors of the Irish Times. And I suppose I was a young journalist. I was a young, gung-ho journalist. I wanted to get good stories. This was a a great story. I Mm -hmm. mean, I didn't... I was a young man and young men are a bit foolish and a bit reckless and they don't, they're not very wise. So mm-hmm. they don't think about people suffering that much. They yeah. just think, you know, I want to get the story. As long as they get the headline. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so I worked with Ed on a number of stories. We, uh, we, for example, um, we, we were very, we led the, 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 the journalists on the story of the efforts to solve the 1981 Republican hunger strike. Irish Commission for Justice and Peace, all the background stuff that we uh, that we uncovered about that, and then the following year we uncovered the Kinkora Boys Home scandal, where uh, where boys in a home were being abused. Mm-hmm. There was probably uh, probably British authorities, the police, and people knew about it. They mm-hmm. may have connived in it. Yeah. So we broke that story. Very good. Um, so that's my so that 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 was me as a journalist. A lucky journalist rather than a good journalist in that I worked with really brilliant journalists mm-hmm. on a number of good stories. What, what in, in your time here in the late 70s, 80s, what would you think was the worst atrocity that you, I suppose, not saying witness, but that you were involved in, I suppose, telling the story of to the outside world? 
Well, there were a number, but I suppose the one I there was, I mean, there were so many bombings. I remember going to the Bally Kelly bombing. When was that kind of, was that 83, 84 um, pub bombing and being, you know, there very early. I mean, one of the first on the scene, first journalists. Um, you know, that was that was in the middle of the night. That was a horrific bombing, you know, random bombing by a loyalist group on a, on a, on a mainly Catholic pub, you know. But, you know, I saw some bad things and I saw, you know, I saw dead bodies and I saw horrific things. And, you know, it's very difficult to think what was the worst that, you know, it was a bad of time. Course, it was course. a horrible time. The country was divided down the middle. I mean, I have vivid memories of the hunger strike and, and you know, being at hunger strikers' funerals and then, you know, being in loyalist areas where there was a complete barrier of, of understanding. It was like the two groups the two communities in this con in this in this region were just utterly divided. Yeah. You couldn't. There was nothing linking them uh, during yeah. that hunger strike period. And you know, driving down through Nuri and Nundalk and black flags everywhere and yeah. people the drumbeat and the out marching. Yeah, and, yeah. it was. It, I found it deeply depressing. It really. It, but anyway. Yeah. Please no God, problem. we don't go back to that. Please God is right, Andy. Andy, could you maybe tell our listeners how you came to be a co-founder of the Centre for Cross-Border Studies? And I guess, what are the aims of this group and what type of study, you know, do you undertake? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that question back a bit and I'm going I'm I'm to say something about something I was involved in before that, which was important, which was the Opsal Commission, uh -huh. which was 92-93. Okay. Uh, I, was, I was back in... Dublin working. I left I left Belfast in '86. I got married to a, a Dublin woman, Diren Niverian, an RT broadcaster, and I moved to Dublin and uh, became a staff reporter in Dublin. Um, and in 1992, they advertised for somebody to run an independent citizens' inquiry into ways forward for Northern Ireland. '92 was a very low period. The, Mayhew Brooks talks between the parties had broken down, the IRA was carrying on bombing and shooting, and there was no obvious way forward. So a group of 200 people from various backgrounds here in the north got together a thing which they called Initiative 92, which mm -hmm. was to set up an independent citizens' inquiry into ways forward for Northern Ireland, mm -hmm. and I was invited to run it. Mm -hmm. So for 13 months I, I ran that. We we went around Northern Ireland talking to people. We, we got written submissions from nearly 600 people. We held public hearings all over Northern Ireland. We eventually got submissions from, we estimated, about 3,000 people when you take the groups and organisations that also gave us submissions. And we produced a big book, uh, the Opsal Report, named after Torkel Opsal, who was the Norwegian, eminent Norwegian human rights lawyer who chaired an independent a panel of independent people from from um ireland britain america uh, uh europe and 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 Torkel from norway to chair it and um a big uh, a big report published as a best-selling book which people have said um fed into the early years of the peace process oh, okay. particularly the concept of parity of esteem yeah. which was raised very high in the recommendations of that of report course, yes so that was very important for me, particularly working with a brilliant man like Torkel Opsal, who was 
a kind of George Mitchell type figure. Mm -hmm. He came in here, he listened, he was a wonderful listener, he was a brilliant mind. Um, he had actually been the rapporteur in the European uh, Commission of Human Rights investigation into the degrading and inhuman treatment of the hooded men who were interned in 1971. Okay. He was the rapporteur of that investigation oh. uh, of the, the European uh, Commission on Human Rights, yeah. which found against Britain um, and found that inhuman and degrading, degrading treatment had happened yes. to those yes. men. So he was a marvellous man. It was a hugely important experience for me for wor working with him. Mm -hmm. And he brought his experience of conflicts He'd also, he was on the UN um, um, Human Rights Committee as well. He brought his experience of conflicts all over the world mm -hmm. where he'd done reports. And one of the things he, he said, he always said, which stuck in my mind, that conflicts about clashing, people's clashing ideas of self-determination are not conflicts that are solved, they are managed. And he quoted the uh, international lawyer, Claire Pally, saying, solutions are for chemists so he always said we have to manage this that's very true to, yeah we have to make sure that we get as peaceful a resolution as possible yeah. he never talked about solutions yeah uh, yeah and it's, it's funny it's a subtle difference but it's a big difference mm -hmm. yeah very true mm -hmm. very good andy yeah just come back i suppose touching on um you are a co-founder of the center of cross-border studies could you tell us, I suppose, yeah. what that is and and yeah. Again, I I came. I was with the Irish Times through the nineteen nineties. After leaving the Opsal Commission, I was going back to the Irish Times. I was given leave of absence to do that, and then nineteen ninety nine, they generously gave me leave of absence again. The then editor Conor Brady was very committed to the North and to peace in the North, mm -hmm. so he gave me leave of absence yet again. I was education correspondent of the paper at the, of the paper at that point to come up to Armagh to set up the Centre for Cross-Border Studies. Mm -hmm. And the Centre for Cross-Border Studies was, I suppose it came out of the peace process. It was, uh, it was set up by a group of people under the auspices of two universities, Dublin, C Dublin City University and Queen's, although actually they did very little. It was, it was the individuals who did the work um, in Armagh to research and develop practical north-south cooperation across a range of areas, mm -hmm. health, education, public administration, um, ICT, planning, all sorts of things, but practical stuff mm -hmm. uh, where it made sense to for people north and south, teachers, doctors, civil servants, to come together, mm -hmm. to work together for the mutual benefit of the people of both jurisdictions mm -hmm. on the island. So it was, it was successful. Um, we... Um, we did all sorts of things. I mean, we, we were, I suppose, being a journalist, I wasn't a specialist in any particular area. Mm -hmm. So we, we, you know, so we did things, for example, we set up um, all-island networks in, um, in university leadership, in teacher, in teacher education, in spatial planning. We set up the first uh, north-south cross-border citizens information service border ireland which is still running strong and will be become very important after whatever comes out of brexit mm -hmm. to get people helps people with information who are moving we're, across. we're nearly 16 minutes in and it took us that long to mention okay. the word brexit okay there you go there you go let's try and talk about other things for exactly. a change so um 
So, you know, we did a lot of innovative things mm -hmm. and we were very highly praised by three Fishy, by, uh, by Bertie O'Hearn, by Brian Cowan and by Enda Kenny. And we had very strong support in the civil service in the south, in Dublin, much less so in the north. Um, but we, uh, I think we did a very good job in terms of researching and developing ideas for practical north-south cooperation. And I'm a strong believer is that you bring people together, north and south, to work together on mm -hmm. things that are of benefit to everybody. That's the way to start removing the poison of, it, it, that's there after centuries of bad relationships on this island. Mm -hmm. So the Centre for Cross-Border Studies is still going strong. I spoke at the annual conference, the 20th annual conference there in September, and the three keynote speakers were the head of the civil service in Britain, the head of the civil service in Ireland, and the head of the civil service in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. So obviously those key people, if if you like, in the permanent government yeah. in these islands think think the centre is still doing a good job. Excellent. I'm, I'm sure that's something that you're extremely proud of. Well, it's, I'm a little bit proud of it. <laughs> I can imagine. Very good. Andy, you co-authored Seamus Mallon's most recent book, mm -hmm. um, A Shared Home Place. Mm -hmm. Can you tell our listeners how this collaboration came about? Well, it comes about. It came about partly because of my presence in Armagh. I was, I was working in Armagh five days a week. My home was in Dublin. I was going back to Dublin at weekends. But if you're if you're in a smallish place like Armagh for fourteen years, five days a week, you get to know a lot of people. Of course. And journalists are quite good at getting getting to know people. That's what we do for a bit. Exactly. For a living. Yeah. So I I met Seamus. I have to say I find him a bit intimidating at first. He can be quite door, you know, in the way he presents himself. But I was approached by a mutual friend when I retired in 2013 from the Centre for Cross-Border Studies. I uh -huh. went back to Dublin. Actually, it was a bit later. It was about 2016. I was approached by a mutual friend, an Irish diplomat, who was a friend of Seamus's, and who said, would I help Seamus write a book? I was doing something else around that time, so it, it took about a year and a half, and he came back to me again, and he asked me again in spring of 2017, and this time I went and talked to Seamus and we sat down, started doing interviews. I wasn't convinced at the beginning. Uh, Seamus had this concept of parallel consent, which we can talk about later, um, which I wasn't 100% convinced would, was workable. But anyway, we sat down, we started doing interviews. And over the period of 18 months or so that I talked to Seamus and interviewed Seamus, I... I developed a great admiration for his courage and integrity and benevolence and open-mindedness. And so we got to know each other well and trust each other. And the result was A Shared Home Place, which was published uh, last May. You mentioned the word there, trust each other. Mm. And I guess to do any collaboration, mm -hmm. um, there needs to be that element of trust yeah. from both quarters. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, one of the big talking points, I suppose, Andy, that came out of Seamus's book was that Seamus said a simple 50% plus one majority for unity mm -hmm. would destabilise society. No, he didn't say it would... Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough, and go ahead. the net result, he said, would be murderous. Yeah. Um, to what extent would you agree with that? I agree very much with that. Um, I think that's an incredibly insecure basis on which to build a united Ireland. I think we have to learn from the history of Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland was set up in 1920, 
with a significant minority of the population didn't recognize it and felt alienated from it. And that was intensified by things like the Special Powers Act, discrimination, we know the story. Um, so Northern Ireland was always unstable. I think we have to learn if we, the danger is we flip it round, we have, we have a, a border poll with a very narrow majority of the unity and we have this large section of the population of a united Ireland, I'll put that in inverted commas because it would be disunited, um, a very large minority of people once again would, hold, would, would have no allegiance to the state. And I think not only in Ireland, but in other places where there's a significant minority have no, has no allegiance to the state, that's a recipe for deep instability. Just come back to the 50% plus one. Does it not undermine the basic fundamentals of democracy? You could argue that, yes. But well, I think well, it's not even an argument. It, it either well, does or it doesn't. Majoritarian democracy, mm -hmm. purely majoritarian democracy. But there are other kinds of democracy. Power sharing in, in Northern Ireland is not majoritarian democracy. It's, to use a long word, consociational democracy is the academic word, where two the political representatives of two clashing groups of people get together in government. And it's happened in Northern Ireland, it's happened in Belgium, it's happened in Les Lebanon, hasn't always worked, but it is seen as an alternative, alternative form of democracy. Just, I suppose, because that's a, a hot topic, yeah, so yeah. Uh, just to keep keep talking about it. If it was good enough for a Brexit poll, surely it should be good enough for a border poll? It wasn't good enough for a Brexit poll, that's no, the point. No, what but, happened but, but, was... But the point is that it was still passed and won. It was passed and won, and the result is that the United Kingdom or Britain or whatever you want to call it is more divided and more destabilised than any time probably since the English Civil War in the 17th century. So you, by, 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 by going along the majoritarian dem dem democracy lines in a very crude and blunt way, mm -hmm. 52 to 48, um, wanted to leave the European Union, you have divided and destabilised that country in a way that n nobody could have foreseen. The, the, Bre the British divided the, and destabilised the their Britain. own country. Exactly. Yeah, we, we took no part no, no, in that. No, I'm not talking about, I, I'm, I'm using you yeah, in yeah, the yeah, sense yeah, of yeah. the electorate. Yeah, yeah. The electorate. Um, and I'm, I suppose we, we are living in what is still recognised yes, as part of the United of Kingdom. People here also voted Absolutely. in that, in that, yeah. in that which, referendum. Which we, we voted to remain, obviously. Yeah. And our, our voice, like the Scottish voice... Yeah, but the point you're, you're making, your, the point your question yes. was, is it good, was it good enough for Brexit? Is it, should it be good enough for a border poll in Ireland? I'm saying Brexit is an example we must not follow mm -hmm. because it will lead to as deep division. And can I just add something? Of course. But there'll be one added element. I'm pretty sure, and I'm not the only one, it'll result in more violence. Yeah. There, there is that possibility, uh, absolutely. And I suppose just, again, using your own example there, if we can learn anything from Brexit, mm, mm. Um, I suppose it's a good enough time to touch upon, I see you've got uh, a newspaper open in front of us here, and you've got the recent letter mm, to mm, Leo Varadkar mm. that was an initiative by Ireland's Future, where over 1,000 citizens from across the island, from all walks of life, signed a letter, I suppose, asking the Irish government to put together a citizens' assembly to discuss uh, the future um, reunification of Ireland, shared Ireland, call it what you want. Yeah. Um, so using your own logic, that should be a pragmatic, pragmatic step to set a form that got up then, shouldn't it? Seamus has a, a different idea. 
Seamus says this is going to take a long time um, and that we should take it in steps. Seamus's emphasis on parallel consent is about trying to get it's not just about some people have criticized it for being a very clunky and undemocratic way of demanding a majority of unionists and the majority of nationalists before you have a United Ireland. You could read it that way. But I think what he is saying in broader terms is that you need a, to make it workable, to make it fair, to make it properly democratic, you need a much bigger number of unionists to accept it. And that, you know, as I think everybody will accept now, the number of unionists who would accept the United Ireland is now very, very small. So he is saying that um, we need to move slowly and in stages. I agree. Try, can I come to yeah, Of course. And bring the unionists along. Yes. And so his idea is that you first have not what you're calling for, or not what Ireland's future is calling for, um, which is the government in the Republic to set up a kind of a citizens' assembly, which will then inevitably be boycotted by the unionists as okay. they boycotted the New Ireland Forum in the 1980s, they boycotted the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation in the 1990s, which were Irish government initiatives. It has to be an independent... Well, by the way, if the British government set it up, Ireland's future would be happy as well. It doesn't have to be the Irish government no, that sets well, it up. Well, well <laughs> Seamus says it shouldn't be governments. Okay. It shouldn't be political yeah, parties. Yeah, okay. It should be an independent initiative set up by citizens, by universities, by some un unimpeachable independent source that nobody could say, ah, oh, this is part of an overall agenda for United Ireland or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's it. So he says it would be modeled on a thing like the Opsal Commission. Yeah. And in the book, he, the Opsal Commission is mentioned. Yeah. Completely independent, international commission of inquiry, chaired by some eminent Scandinavian or Canadian or something. Um, and that would be the first stage. The second stage would be the review process that's in the Good Friday Agreement, that's built into the Good Friday Agreement, which would learn from the findings of what the citizens of Ireland, North and South, have said in the, if you like, Opsal Mark II independent inquiry. Then you move into the, into the review section as it's built into the Good Friday Agreement, where the governments widely um, um, consult on the way forward, and only then you start even thinking about a border problem because the issues are so sensitive and so potentially dangerous that these things have to be teased out over a period. Seamus doesn't put any time on it, but I would suggest 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Can I just go back to something you said there? And I, I want to ask you to say it because I don't want to misquote you what yeah, you said. Yeah. Did you or Seamus said there that there should be a greater number of unionists want a united Ireland whenever that time would be than nationalist and that's the way it no, should be no, worked, no? No, the, his idea of parallel consent, which is actually built into the Good Friday Agreement for the workings of the Northern Ireland Assembly, is that on certain key votes there has to be a majority of unionists and nationalists for a, a key decision to pass through. But, but, but the again, assembly. I suppose, if it's... Uh, we'll, we'll just... Say there's going to be a vote on a border poll tomorrow, just yeah, for yeah, this yeah. argument's sake. Uh, but there, were, there was five, ten years dialogue done before yeah, this yeah, vote yeah. tomorrow. You know, surely to God, it has to be a simple fifty plus one percent. 
you know, but but that is how democracy works. No, 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 whether, we, whether you we, want to accept it or Seamus or we're anybody. We're going to have disagree on this. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but it is democracy. That is majoritarian democracy. But, there are all kinds of democracy. And that, I mean, there's a thing called the preferendum, which many people believe should have been used in the Brexit referendum, where you vote, people vote on a number of options. It's not a binary thing. Yeah. You don't vote A or B. Yeah. You vote on A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Mm-hmm. For example, the first-past-the-post system in Britain, you, you, you vote and you get one person per constituency mm-hmm. is voted in as an MP. But for us in the South, it's proportional representation, so you might vote for right down the ticket yeah. and you might get four or five uh, 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 TDs from different parties. Yeah. So there are different kinds of democracy. I'm just saying, and Seamus is saying, that it's very dangerous if you just go for a united Ireland after 50% plus one for the reasons that I've said. Mm-hmm. That, these, that, that, that Northern Ireland was in, in inherently unstable from the beginning, mm-hmm. the lessons of Brexit, mm-hmm. and the fact that we know that the Unionists are a martial people, they have a history of, of resorting to arms, and, and I believe if, they, if that goes through by a narrow majority, they will resort to arms again, mm-hmm. and we will have Republicans trying to enforce unity and Loyalists trying to block it, and we're going to be in big I suppose all, all I would say on that is if loyalists resorted to arms, um, you know, we cannot let a few disgruntled people um, face down, and again I use this word, um, democracy in action. If it was 51.1%, 50.1%, or 60% or whatever it is, a few disgruntled loyalists um, certainly um, should not hold the country to ransom and the will of the people. How... The will it, of the people as expressed by 50% plus one of the people. And again, I go back That's to... That's not very convincing, I, though, is No, it? no, it's not, but it's democracy in action. And as, to use your own words there, we'll have to agree to disagree we'll on have this. To agree to <laughs> I think the point that Seamus is making, apart from the individual specific point about 50% plus one, and I agree with them on this, is we have to have a debate about what kind of... what kind of majority will make this thing workable so that we move towards a peaceful, harmonious Ireland in the future. It might be a weighted majority. I noticed that some Labour MPs in Britain are now talking about it's a pity we didn't have a vote by a weighted majority, say 60%, in the Brexit referendum. There are other ways, you know, there are definitely other ways. I suppose, again, um, before we go off this subject, I absolutely agree. I would be an advocate of a yes vote if there was a border poll. Now, I appreciate there just won't be one question. There'll probably be a couple of questions. However, that's why it's imperative, I believe, that there is... I know you don't agree with Ireland's future setting up of... uh, the Irish government, sorry, aspect of setting up an All-Ireland Forum or Assembly. um, But that's why the dialogue and conversations must start now to ensure that we don't repeat the, the, the Brexit debacle because... You know, even members of my own family were asking me and asking different people, I'm sure you've experienced it too, what way should I vote in this thing? You know, because people genuinely didn't know, aren't they? And again, I don't mean to dig any political party out here because, you know, everybody has their own views and things, but like it has been proven since that there was dark money fired at advertising to try and influence people. Now, no side has their hands clean, I'm not suggesting that either, but, you know, that's why... Shared Ireland endorses Ireland's future in their call for the Irish government to set up a People's Assembly to discuss, plan, get all sides around the table. Now, I appreciate what, why would a unionist want to come 
to uh, to an assembly to discuss an All-Ireland. I accept. So terminology and language is important It's not just terminology and language. It's that if you have a conversation, and Ireland's Future talks about a conversation, Yeah. It can't be closed off. There can't be a predetermined outcome. Of course there can't. Whereas the leader or the spokesman of, of, um, of Ireland's future, quoted in the Irish Times this week, talks about, I would like to hear a warm embrace for the unionist tradition in an all-island constitutional entity. Now that's saying to unionists, we'll have a conversation, but there's only one outcome, and that outcome is predetermined, and it's unity. What I am saying that there, have to be, there has to be a conversation which is open-ended, that, that allows more than one option, because otherwise, frankly, pragmatically, the unions won't take part in the conversation. It could, it could include some version of, uh, a new version of power sharing within the United Kingdom. It could be some form of federalism. But how will, we know if they don't get, how, will, how will we know if the unions don't attend this because to have this conversation? Because they won't have it the way it's couched at the moment, that there's only one determined outcome. As, can I just say something? Of course. There's, there, there's, I know a unionist politician, an open-minded unionist politician, mm-hmm. who was so in I. conversation <laughs> with a Fianna Fáil senator recently. Uh-huh. And he said to the beautiful senator was asking about the union's reluctance to think about unity. And he said, you're asking me to give up my country. What would you say if I demanded that you gave up your country? Now, if it's coached in those terms, there's no conversation. There have to be, both sides have to give a bit. Of course. There have to be possibilities in the middle between a unitary state. I don't believe, as somebody from a half unionist background, that unions will ever accept being citizens of a unitary Irish state. So there must be somewhere in between the unitary Irish state mm-hmm. and the way things are at the moment, integration with, with the United Kingdom, there must be ways in between. It would probably be complicated, like the Good Friday Agreement I was think complicated. We're, I think we're actually very close on agreeing here on then. I'll tell you why, because everything that you're only after saying, I fully endorse and yeah, agree with. Yeah. And I suppose that's why I'm endorsing Ireland's future and their letter and their call on the Irish government to set up a citizen assembly. And just let me finish this, it's so that we can get everyone around that table. And here, the unionist, loyalist community fears, hear their concerns. To say what you're only after saying, and I know you or I can't speak on behalf of anybody, but like I want to hear what are they afraid of. And then, until I hear that, then I can possibly help address it and reassure them. And can I just add in this one last thing before you come back to me? Peter Robinson alluded to this last year, as I'm sure you well know, that he said, and he used the house insurance analogy. He says, while we don't expect our house to burn down, that's why we took out insurance in preparation for the worst case scenario. So even Peter Robinson, an ex-leader of the DUP, like, I think one of the frustrations is that Unionism could be walking headlong into something here. And if they don't get around the table and at least let their voice be heard, unfortunately, the 50.1% could catapult them into something, as you rightfully say, where they probably don't want to be there. So at least come around the table and have a stake in the conversation and take ownership of it and, and, you know, have your voice heard. Well, then the terms of reference have to be different. You can't just say this is a conversation about Irish unity because that is the unionist's worst nightmare. You can't say, we'll have a conversation. What are we going to have a conversation about? Irish unity. 
Well, that's our worst nightmare. We've been fighting to prevent that for the past hundred years. We don't want to talk about that. But if you if you don't have if you have terms of reference which are open ended, like for example the Opsal Commission, we'll talk about our terms of reference in the Opsal Commission. Where we'll talk about anything that's about the good of Northern Ireland or whatever you want to call it. So this would be something about the good of Ireland, the two parts of Ireland, together or separately. That's what we want to talk about. And maybe, just maybe, you might persuade a few unionists to go along with that if they don't think it's all a setup to get them into talking about a United Ireland. And, and by the way, I suppose before we go off this, I do also agree with you. There can be no preconceived outcome to any negotiation before it starts. Well, so Niall Murphy seems to suggest he's got his mind already made I, up. I, you know? I, I, I don't believe that Niall uh, does believe that for one second. Niall simply wants, and again, I shouldn't be saying what Niall wants, but from speaking to Niall, I believe that Niall simply wants a mechanism put in place where these matters can be discussed, as I said, and hear people's fears, their aspirations. And also, it's an opportunity for the Irish government and Leo Varadkar to make a very significant statement here. To turn, to turn around and say, we cherish everybody on the sound. Well, we said reach that many reach, times. I know, some, but, some, but put it into practice now. Talks to put it into practice, Leo. And, well, and, is, and set this forum this up is not the and, way. and extend the arm of friendship to no, all citizens on the island. This is not the way to do it, because if you set it up in the way that the Ireland's future wants it to be set up, the unionists won't, won't, won't turn up. So there, there's no point in it. It's not going to work. Seamus also spoke, and I think with this subject maybe covered, but in his book about how nationalists must show generosity yeah. to their unions' neighbours, yeah. and, and I appreciate we've kind of touched on this, but we could maybe flesh it out a yeah. little bit more. Um, that how nationalists must show generosity to the unionist neighbours if they are to convince them of the merits of unity. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, Barandi, what does this generosity look like and what shape does it take? Okay. Now, I know we've already discussed you don't yeah. agree with okay. Ireland's well, future, but... I think but that it should take two forms. Okay. It should not involve pressuring them into a border poll in the near future. That another effort has to be made to share this place politically. I know the DUP are extremely difficult, but another effort has to be made. The Good Friday Agreement set up an extremely delicate, careful, balanced mechanism so that the two, the political representatives of the two communities could run this place together. And if there is a united Ireland one day, Nationalists and Unionists, Catholics and Protestants are still going to have to learn to live in this place and run it together. So that's the first thing. There must be an, another serious effort to get back to power sharing, get back to the institutions, get back I mean, to the assembly. I, I know you want to go on, but just on getting back to power sharing, yeah, getting yeah. back, stormed up. Yeah. What do you believe is the biggest obstacle preventing that at the moment? Well, as I understand it, it's the DUP's opposition to an Irish language act. But that's surely as, and I understand also that in February 2018 and last July, they were very close to something around the Irish Language Act, around a few other things, and the, the DUP freaked at the last minute and couldn't, felt they couldn't, Arlene Foster felt she couldn't sell it to her party membership, and I think probably Nigel Dodds played a very negative role in that. I think, but the... I think, I think we're close. 
I think the main barrier is DUPers, the DUPs fears and and uh, they can't tell it to their community. And, but that I think post the Brexit mess, mm -hmm. there must be people in the unionist community that go, wait a minute. If we don't do something serious here about serious here about sharing power again, our position in the United Kingdom is going to be seriously endangered. Do you think these new talks will just say sometime next year about getting Stormont back up and running after Brexit is done and dusted? Do you think will Arlene will she still be leading the DUP? Oh, I'm not a working uh, uh, journalist anymore. I don't talk to those sort of people, okay. so I don't know whether it's Arlene, whether it's Jeffrey Donaldson. This is an issue, this is a nettle that has to be grasped. And I understand from my former journalistic colleagues and, I don't know, senior civil servants who I occasionally talk to, that, um, that Arlene was prepared to do a deal both in February 2018 and in July earlier this year. So it wasn't Arlene. She didn't block it. Other people blocked All it. Other people that she tried yeah, to yeah. sell it to. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you so were, the second, the you were second going to make point, a second point. The yes. second point in terms of generosity is... I think nationalists who are now in a stronger position are in the ascendant because of the demographic figures, larger Catholic population, because Brexit is another, the Brexit package that Boris Johnson has put forward is going to be a blow to unionism. I think the, the nationalists are in a stronger position and I think they should offer the unionists not just a unitary state. We're going back to our previous, the previous part of our conversation. There are other options which the unionists can live with. Uh, and I think that, that's why I'm very, I think it's so important that any, whatever you call it, inquiry, um, citizens' assembly, forum that is going to be discussing these matters has to keep all the options open because nationalism, which after all is a Irish nationalism, is the majority community and political philosophy on this island has to be generous to unionism which is the minority community and offer them things which are some way short of a unitary state for the reason that i said earlier i do not believe that unionists will ever feel loyalty to an irish unitary state the same way as that nationalist and republicans will never feel loyalty to a british monarch or absolutely. government or to a northern ireland state yeah absolutely a lot of conversations still to be had, aren't they? Absolutely. But, I mean, you, if you're going to have a conversation, as opposed to dictating to somebody, there has to be a certain level of equality, there has to be a certain level of comfort on both sides, and there can't be predetermined outcomes. Absolutely. There should be no predetermined outcomes before a negotiation starts. And I say, again, we'll agree to disagree. That's why negotiations must start. But they're not negotiations. Discussions must start. Negotiations are all about government. Well, sorry, and hard Con conversations must start. Conversations and discussions yeah. at probably quite a low level at first, and they will take a long time. And negotiation is the next step. But sir, look what we're doing now, aren't we? Well, Having a, a lovely civil conversation. We're, we're both broadly nationalists. So again, <laughs> nationalists talking to. I'm not quite the same kind of. I'm a much softer nationalist, but. It's still nationalists talking to nationalists. You I'm, know? A, I'm a very self-nationalist also, <laughs> Andy. Andy, it is said that the Good Friday uh, Agreement provided a political process and not a peace process. What steps are required to create a truly shared Ireland? Now, I appreciate there's elements of subjects that we've already discussed yeah, yeah, that, yeah. You know, in this answer. Yeah. But I suppose on the Good Friday Agreement, I suppose it was a political process. And, and, and I suppose even by our conversation here now, 
It wasn't a truly peace process, was it? It was a way to manage a very difficult situation and stop people killing each other. That was its main yeah. achievement. Yeah. That for the past 20 years, the level of killings went down. They went up briefly and then they went down. Yeah. And now the levels of killings are very, very low. The other great achievement of the Good Fire Agreement was it effectively got rid of the border because under the Single European Act, the Single European Market, alongside the Good Friday Agreement, there was no economic border anymore. You yeah. could move across that border for economic reasons, cultural reasons, social reasons, personal reasons, as easily as if you were in one country. And my hope was that over a period of quite a long time, that would remove all the other political and psychological barriers. So people would suddenly realise, we kind of have a united Ireland. We're all part of the European Union. The, the, the borders and boundaries don't matter anymore. Actually, the kind of constitutional thing isn't that important. We're all living happily. We're all pr pr prosperous. We're all doing well. That's what I hoped. And for a few years, up to 2016, in a very slow way, that was happening. But now, I'm afraid, since Brexit, we're back, back into the tribal trenches again. And it's uh, my, my dream of an economically united Ireland has kind of gone for the moment. Yeah, but Bra Brexit certainly has put the cat amongst the pigeons, and I suppose it has accelerated the whole United Ireland project by, I suppose, a generation. You could say that, yeah. I think for many people, and many Northern Nationalist friends of mine, would have thought that, you know, in the years between 2007 and 2016 in particular, they were relatively happy to leave the constitutional United Ireland to another generation because we were doing as well as we could for the people here and now. Yeah. You know, there was a rising tide. Economically, we were doing well. There was relative peace. There was power sharing in Stormont. It was pretty good. It wasn't and perfect, but it, was, it could have been a lot worse. And two people that, unfortunately, we no longer have with us. Uh, the Chuckle Brothers seem yeah, to be absolutely. getting on reasonably yeah, well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, talk about the importance of individuals in history. Yeah. And as you know, I wrote a book about Ian Paisley, or co-wrote a book yes. about Ian Paisley. So, I mean, I know the nature of the man, mm -hmm. or the nature of the beast as mm -hmm. he was for yeah. most of his career. But all credit to those two big personalities. Yeah. It shows the importance of individuals in history, and we've lost both of them, and we're dealing with much smaller people. Tell now. me this, just when, when again, I hadn't planned to bring up Martin or yeah, Ian, yeah. but do you think is there a lack of leadership maybe at Absol the moment? Absolutely, complete lack of leadership. I mean, that's why I talk about the importance of individuals in history. You know, we were blessed in the 1990s. A lot of people rose to the surface, some very unlikely people, David Trimble, Martin McGuinness, Ian Paisley, Peter Robinson, um, and then of course Bertie Hearn and Tony and Jerry Adams. Yeah, and, and even Monica Jerry McWilliams Adams, and people like that. Yeah. David Irvine. Mm -hmm. We were blessed with a generation of people who were there at the right point at the right time. Mm -hmm. Inside our, in Ireland, outside Ireland, yeah. you know, Bill Clinton in America, Clinton. Jacques Delors in Europe, Tony Blair, Bertie yeah. Hearn, and all the people in, and we hit we got it right. It took twenty two months of hard talking and you know and at, at half past three on Good Friday, after Good Friday afternoon, they, it was still not a deal. Still hadn't been agreed, but somehow a bit of a miracle took place in that last hour and a half, and 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 the pieces fell into place. But um, now, I'm afraid all around we're we're not well led. You know, Boris Johnson in London, um, Arnie Foster and Michelle O'Neill here. 
it's uh, you know Donald Trump in, in Washington we are not led by good people and therefore the the, 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 the hopes for reconciliation in Ireland have been set back as a result. You mentioned there there was a lot of hard talking done to, I suppose, win the Good Friday Agreement, yeah, yeah. Um, the negotiations, which leads me on to my next subject, Andy. You are a board member of the Glencree Centre for Peace and Reconciliation. Yeah. Can you tell our listeners what the Glencree Centre does and what role you play there? Well, the important role of the Glencree Centre was between about the mid-90s, the mid-1990s and about 2007, when there were endless negotiations. People remember that, that with the Good Friday Agreement, but they forget that the institutions collapsed again in 2000. And, well, they took about two years to get set up, and then they collapsed and kept collapsing. Mm -hmm. And in 2002, they collapsed for five years. Mm -hmm. So during that period, there were endless negotiations going on behind the scenes. And when the public negotiations broke down and the people were on both sides were screaming and shouting at each other, they very often retired to the Wicklow Mountains, no media, no press, no politicians, and they could talk. And in, just for our listeners, yeah. the, when Andy refers to the Wicklow Mountains, that's actually where the Glencree Centre is the, based. The Glencree yeah. Centre is a very beautiful glen in the middle of the Wicklow Mountains. Very remote place, but only 25 miles away from Dublin. It's an old um, British Army it's barracks, British isn't Army it? Barracks, I, was, I was privileged to be at it yeah. on a couple of occasions, yeah. and it is a beautiful setting. Well, it's kind of a bit shabby now. The setting is brilliant. It is beautiful. If, if, if we could find a couple of million from somewhere to do it <laughs> off, it would be brilliant. Yeah, it would be yeah. magical. But it was built... Um, in the aftermath of the 1798 rebellion, which called Wicklow was one of the, the centres of, of that rebellion, and the British army drove a, what they call the military road, it's still called the military road, right through the middle of the Wicklow Mountains, and Glencree was one of the, the barracks that it built on that military road. So it's a very historical place. Yeah. I, I guess even just continuing the subject with the Glencree yeah, Centre yeah. and your involvement in it, Andy, um, I find it fascinating to hear you even saying there, like an observer, an observer, like like we all are sitting, listening to the radio, uh, watching the TV, um, you hear peace talks falling down. Yeah. But when I first became aware of the Glencree Centre yeah. and I realised, ah, oh, publicly these talks have stalled. But it was so refreshing yeah. Yeah. for me to know that they have retreated, as you rightfully yeah. said, where there's no cameras, no yeah, press, yeah, no yeah, journals, absolutely. and the intense negotiations facilitated yeah. by you, the Glencree Centre, yeah, and yeah, others, yeah, of course, yeah. were helping to keep the momentum absolutely. going. I think, for example, the Loyalists and even the DUP, although the DUP don't go to Glencree now, but back in the 90s, the Loyalists and even the DUP, and the DUP are terrified about going even going, even going to the South, you know, but they found this was a safe space. We have expert conciliators and mediators who, who organized these sessions, and they found that all very reassuring yeah. and comforting. Um, so, I mean, that's what we do still behind the scenes. We still bring people together behind the scenes. We work a lot, for example, with um, people who've been traumatized mm -hmm. by, by the violence here yeah. for 30 years, who are still struggling to come to terms with, with, with it. So we bring them together. Uh, now, I hope that we're not needed so much now because the politicians are talking kind of off and on. I hope we'll never come to the stage again where Glencree will be needed because nobody will be talking again and there'll be acts of violence. But Glencree is there. It's supported by the Irish government. 
it has professional people who know about this kind of stuff and um, and they are there if if need be if they, if, if, if to, to, to once again create that, that safe space uh, uh, for, again personally speaking I think it's a, a magnificent setup and um, from what I know about it um, you are the unsung heroes. <laughs> no, I genuinely mean that. Okay. And and getting to know yourself and all our members like Pat Haynes, mm-hmm. um, you do tireless work behind well, I mean, the scenes. I mean, yeah, and, and, I don't want to emphasise that, that. But there's a man you, you mentioned who does tireless work behind the scenes and under the under the radar. Who's that? Well, I, I, I'm not going to mention him again because okay, he no prefers problem. not to be mentioned. Yeah, no problem. But he is a, a genuine peacemaker. Yeah. He yeah. works for Glen Cree, but he spends most of his time up here. Yeah. And he works to bring people together on both sides, yeah. from every side. Absolutely. Including the most alienated and difficult Certainly. people. He has the ugly conversations. He, uh, does. he has the ugly conversations. Absolutely. Andy, tell me this, from what you have seen, does Boris Johnson understand or really care about the people in the North? Now, again, that's the people in the North, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. so I'm not picking out one yeah, community. Yeah, yeah. Or does any British government really care about us? In your opinion, of course. No is the answer for Boris Johnson, <laughs> <Okay>. clearly. clearly. <laughs> Boris Johnson cares about Boris Johnston and being the Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, now, I think it's, to be fair, the period between the early 90s and about 2010... There was a, a very, very major commitment by the British political class, um, by the senior politicians in Britain, led by John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, and their senior civil servants. Now, it goes back earlier, actually. It goes back to the Anglo-Irish Agreement in the mid-'80s. From the mid-'80s to about 2010, there was a huge commitment by senior people in British politics and uh, the, the civil service to, to resolve what they saw as this, this um, endless problem of Northern Ireland and the troubles in Northern Ireland. So there was huge intellectual commitment. Of course, it, it was also by people in America, by people in Brussels, mm-hmm. by people in Dublin. But the British, I think, genuinely did the British establishment, elements of the British establishment. Maybe, you know, you, huge credit has to be given to Tony Blair. I know afterwards, after the Iraq war, he became completely discredited, mm-hmm. but huge credit. He had an extraordinary focus, Blair. He was a brilliant, brilliantly talented politician. As you alluded to earlier, the likes of him, Bertie, yeah. Bill Clinton, the, the right people were there at they the right They were all time. brilliant politicians, mm-hmm. flexible, clever politicians. They're not the most honest people in the world, but, then, <laughs> but good politicians aren't necessarily honest. That's but, why you're not a politician. I'm not a politician. <laughs> but they focused for a few years on this little province or region and they said we're going to do our absolute best to get a resolution of this place's problems and they did Mm -hmm. and for 20 years as a result we've had peace thousands of people who would have been dead if the troubles had carried on are alive Mm -hmm. there there, there have there have been despite we're in a bad place at the moment there have been you know i've seen very significant improvements in north-south relations and north-south cooperation um there have been steps forward. Yeah. Now we've stepped back since Brexit, yeah. but you have to give credit where credit's due. I know Republicans find it difficult, but there were people in London in the 1990s, early 2000s, who did their damnedest to help this place out of its out of its divisions. No, I suppose I agree with your answer, by the way, about Boris Johnson. At least, I, like I, I, I cannot see Boris or Jacob Rees-Mogg really caring about you, I, Arlene Foster. Michelle and no, no, or no, any no, citizen no, like they, no. it's, they have no interest in it it's self interest absolutely yeah absolutely. 
Andy, we are 55 minutes into this podcast. Okay. I know you're going to speak at an engagement, so I won't uh, keep you much longer. Um, you touched on earlier, this is my one of my last questions, yeah. by the way. You touched on earlier that if there was, uh, if the border poll was won by, say, the nationalist side, um, that there would be a potential for loyalist yeah, violence. Yeah. Um, in recent weeks, the PSNI chief constable warned of the potential of loyalist disorder if they did not get their type of Brexit even. Mm, mm, mm. Um, I suppose, I don't know, it's more of a statement that than a question. Mm. Uh, but like, surely to God, you know, if you don't get what you want, you can't throw the toys out of the pram, can you? Well, let's just leave Brexit aside. I don't actually agree with the Chief Constable, although he knows more than more about it than well, I do. Well, I suppose but, he's uh, going by yeah. his intelligence. Yeah, that he's, he he's, has... he's intelligence on the ground. I mm. mean, there are obviously some still very violent and gangster-like elements in loyalism um, who are always uh, likely to be, become violent. I just think, I go back to the history of Ulster loyalism and Ulster unionism. Their way to resist what they see as their ultimate nightmare, which is the United Ireland, has to re, as, is a resort to arms. Back in 19, the Home Rule crisis in 1912, the, 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 uh, the, the, uh, the riots that, that accompanied the foundation of the state in 1920, the Bombay Street attacks in 1969, the loyalist sectarian assassinations, you know, that's, they're a martial people. It's not for nothing that they provided the backbone of, of the British Army for, for several hundred years, you know? And they're so proud of their sacrifice at the Somme and in the First World War. They believe they laid down their lives for the British. That's a very strong element in their, in their philosophy. And if they see themselves being tricked, as they will see it in that way, into a United Ireland, um, they, I believe, will respond uh, violently. I have to say that I think... The danger is there will be violence on both sides, because I think the loyalists will re will react violently to a united Ireland, if, for example, it's a very narrow majority in favour in a in a border poll, and I believe the Republicans will then feel it incumbent on them to defend their new gains. They've got a united Ireland. We are going to defend it. So I I I, I would be deeply worried about the the, the, the likelihood of peace. In, in that in that circumstance, I guess if anyone is under the illusion that they may be tricked into United mm -hmm. Ireland, I would um, ask them to take the advice of um, the DUP's former leader Peter Robinson and um, start preparing and yeah. negotiating. Well, Peter Robinson's a wise old unionist owl. He's thought this thing through, and he has the he has the space now that he's not an active politician to say these unpopular things. And he's absolutely right. What he says is just makes common sense. But he also says he also said in that speech in in Donegal that to to have a, a border poll in the aftermath of a chaotic Brexit would be an absolute ca catastrophe. I suppose this is a conversation that you know we could continue for hours yeah, and yeah. hours and hours. But yeah, tell me this, Andy, before we go, who do you admire? Well. I think you were going to, I was expecting a question like, who would you like to sit down with at dinner? Oh, I'm going to ask you that. Okay, who do I admire? <laughs> um, I admire peacemakers. I admire people who, in extremely difficult situations, try to make peace. And I've seen it not just in Northern Ireland. I've seen it when I was in, 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 in Central America working as a journalist. I've seen amazing Jesuit priests in El Salvador 
trying to make peace, trying to bring the two sides together, trying to speak up for human rights, for justice in a peaceful way. Because I think that, I think we've had too much violence in our, in our history and that doesn't lead us anywhere. I'm, I mean, I would be frankly very much in the mold of, not in the mold, I would follow the thinking of Daniel O'Connell, Charles Stuart Parnell, John Hume, that ultimately we have to sit down and talk and do things peacefully. If there's violence and people get killed, that's the worst way to persuade anybody to do anything. If you kill somebody, if a Republican paramilitary, an IRA man, kills a unionist member of the UDR, you're shutting down the conversation immediately. Whatever that family thought of the argument for United Ireland before their loved one was killed, that's the end of the conversation once their loved one was killed. So we have to do things peacefully. Seamus's main message is, please God, never let us go back to the way we were in the 70s, 1970s and 1980s, when at certain points we were very close to a Bosnian-style civil war. After the King's Mills massacre, times during Glen Cree, during Drum Cree, during the Drum Cree thing. So that would be, the people I would admire would be the peacemakers. So, you know, I admire... Gandhi, I admire Nelson Mandela, I admire, those are the sorts of people I admire, that, that I admire. A very good answer, Amber. <laughs> Last question, I promise. And we always ask every guest this, if you could invite three people, either alive or dead, to your fictional dinner party, who would they be, and maybe more importantly, why? Well, the first would be Torkel Opsal, who was a Norwegian human rights, eminent in human rights lawyer who, 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 who headed the Opsal Commission. He would be the first. Okay. He's the most impressive human being I've ever worked with in my life. Okay. The second would be a journalist. Got to be a journalist. Yes. But he's very little known in this country. His name is Ristard Kapuscinski, and he's a Polish Polish, Polish journalist yes. who wrote some of the most brilliant articles and the bravest articles about the kind of conflict zones in Africa, Asia, and Latin America in in the third world. He he was everywhere. He's mm -hmm. among the, the bravest and best journalist of the 20th century. He died a few years ago. And the third is Mary McAleese. I'm glad you included a woman in this. Yeah, well, got to have a woman. <laughs> I think Mary McAleese, and again, I know her a bit, is a very brave and outspoken woman who's spoken out against the excesses of her own Catholic Church, and she's a devout Catholic, and did marvellous things when she was president of Ireland about bringing the two sides, including unionists and loyalists, to her house in Irish and and people discovering each other as human beings and realising nobody had horns. We were all Irish people, or at the very least, lived on the island of Ireland and should learn to share the island of Ireland. So I think Mary McAleese was very brave, very visionary, and has a wonderful human touch. So I remember thinking when she once gave me a hug and a kiss, I thought, I can die happy now. I've been kissed and hugged by the by the president of Ireland. Three very interesting people, and they and um, it's refreshing to hear somebody coming up with uh, different names because I tend to get the same ones all the time. Like as you said, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, whatever. So just one last wee quick question, if you don't mind, Andy. Seeing that you mentioned an ex-president of Ireland, there we um, there is obviously a bill um, going through the Senate at the moment about. Um, future presidential voting rights for yeah, all yeah, Irish yeah, citizens. Yeah. What is your take on that? And do you agree that all Irish citizens should be able to vote for their president? Or what's your opinion? Yeah, I, I agree all Irish citizens should be able to vote for the president. I'm not sure about emigrants. I'm not sure about people who have the right to an Irish passport. Diaspora. 
I'm not sure about that. Yeah. Because somebody's been out of Ireland a long time in, in America or Australia really doesn't know much but, but about the, this But country. then I suppose the argument is tell them that they're not an Irish citizen and they do not have the right to vote for their president. You'll, you'll, you'll soon get a different story. Yeah, well, my emphasis would be, I, I, I haven't thought that one through, but my emphasis would be I think it is right that the people on the island of Ireland should have the right to vote for the president. And what I hope it would lead to is we'd have uh, presidents like particularly Mary Robinson and Michael D. Higgins, who are not threatening to unionists, who are all-encompassing, inclusive figures who would be able to talk to unionists, because I think that could be a good role for a future president of Ireland. On that note, Mr. Andy Pollock, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today, and I genuinely mean that. I enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed the little... Uh, to and fro that no, we had too, it, and it was done very respectfully and um, I believe that's how all negotiations should take place as we move on into a peaceful and shared Ireland thank you very much okay.